You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 8, given in Berlin on the 10th of November, 1908. Those of you who have been attending these branch lectures for several years may have noticed that their themes are not randomly chosen, but follow a certain sequence and progression. Even within the space of a single winter, the lectures always have a certain inner connection, even if this isn't immediately outwardly apparent. It will therefore be very important to take account of the various courses held here alongside the branch evenings themselves. The aim of the former is to bring members who have joined later uh, later up to date, as it were, on the stage we have reached with these branch lectures. Someone who joins us here will meet many things in branch lectures that cannot be easily understood without further explanation. But here I must mention something else that should increasingly be borne in mind in the various branches of our German section. Since a certain consecutive thread runs through the lectures, I am obliged to shape each one in a way that will inform the whole series. In a single branch lecture, for more advanced members, it is impossible, therefore, to couch things in a way that is easily accessible to someone who has only been present for a short while. Of course, one could speak about the same theme in a more elementary way, but this would be inappropriate when seeking, as we do, to progressively develop our spiritual scientific life in the branch meetings. This is connected in turn with the fact that we should increasingly refrain, all the more so the further we progress, from publishing or reporting on the lectures I give in branch meetings or even sharing them between branch groups. This should really be avoided. You see, increasingly it really does matter a great deal whether a lecture given in a branch on a Monday is followed the following Monday by the next consecutive lecture. Even if members of the audience do not immediately see how the latter follows the former, it is important. By passing such lectures around, no account can be taken of the context involved. In some circumstances, a subsequent lecture is read before a previous one, inevitably leading to misunderstandings and confusion. I mention this as an important aspect of our anthroposophical life. Even a parenthesis or greater or lesser accentuation of a word or phrase is connected with the whole developing trajectory of our branch life. And only if publication of the lectures is strictly monitored so that basically nothing is published before I have checked it can copying or publishing of lectures have a beneficial outcome.
In a sense, this is also a kind of introduction to the forthcoming lectures to be given here in our branch. During the winter, an inner thread will run through the sequence of lectures. The preparatory material will culminate, especially in this winter's lectures, in a quite specific concluding focus. The lecture, given here a week ago, was a small beginning, and today's will be a kind of continuation. Not, though, in the sense of fiction installments in a magazine, in which the 38th installment picks up where the 37th left off. Instead, everything will be inwardly interrelated, even if the topics appear to be different, and the connection will lie in an eventual culmination in the final lectures. Today, therefore, in relation to these final lectures, I will already offer some brief comments on the nature of illness, and next Monday I will speak about the origin historical significance and meaning of the Ten Commandments. It might appear that there is no connection at all between these. You will find, in the end, however, that there really is an inner connection between all these things, and that they are not presented as distinct and separate lectures, as might well be the case for a broader public. Today we will discuss the nature of illness of diseases from the point of view of spiritual science. People usually only concern themselves with disease, or at least with one or other forms of disease, when they fall ill in some way, and then they are mostly only interested in their recovery, in the fact of being cured. How they are cured is usually of very little interest to them and it is even very agreeable to them not to have to concern themselves further with the nature of this recovery. Most of our contemporaries are happy to delegate the task of curing them to the people appointed to do so. In fact, a far more pervasive faith in authority holds sway in this field in our era than has ever held sway in the sphere of religion. Medical papacy irrespective of what form it assumes in one place or another, has today become extremely prevalent and will go on taking stronger hold in the future. Lay people are not in the least at fault for this state of affairs and its future increase. You see, people don't give it any thought, don't concern themselves with such things, not at least until they have first-hand experience of it, suffer an acute illness, and need a cure. And for this reason, a great majority of the population looks on with complete indifference as the medical papacy assumes ever greater proportions, worming its way into the most diverse fields, for instance, intervening extensively in children's education, in school life, and staking a claim here to a certain form of therapy. People do not worry about the deeper underlying factors at work here. They stand by and watch as public ordinances are given some kind of legislative form. They have no real wish to gain insight into such things. By contrast, there will always be those who, finding themselves in difficulty and discovering that ordinary materialistic medicine, whose foundations they have no interest in, does not answer their needs, will seek help from practitioners 
who draw on an esoteric foundation. But still they will be concerned only with whether or not they can be cured. They are blithely unconcerned as to whether all mainstream methods and knowledge are undermining and undercutting a deeper spiritually derived approach. Who worries if a public ordinance prohibits the practice of a method founded on esoteric insight, or even if the practitioner is locked up? People fail to consider all such things thoroughly enough and only wake up to them in a particular case that affects them directly. The task of an authentic spiritual movement, though, is to waken awareness that the egotistic quest for a cure is insufficient, but that instead insight is needed into the deeper foundations of these things and the dissemination of such insight. In our materialistic age, it is all too obvious to anyone who can see what is going on that medical ideas in particular are most powerfully influenced by the materialistic mode of thinking. But to chase after a catch-all phrase, lauding one method or another, and merely criticizing what is based on scientific foundations, and is in many respects useful, but is nevertheless dressed up in materialistic theories, will be just as mistaken as, on the other hand, to subsume everything under, quote, psychic healing, close quote, and all such one-sided approaches. Above all, modern humanity must increasingly realize that the human being is a complex entity and that everything relating to us is informed by such complexity. If a scientific discipline maintains that we consist only of the physical body, it will be unable to engage in any salutary way with aspects of human health or disease. You see, health and illness relate to the whole human being, and not just to the part of him that is the physical body. But here again we should not regard the matter in too superficial a way. There are plenty of properly qualified physicians who certainly will not accept that their faith is rooted in materialism, but instead will profess one religious faith or another. They would be indignant if you reproach them with having a deeply materialistic outlook. But this isn't what counts. What somebody says and his convictions have no significance at all. That's his personal affair. In actual practice, what counts is that one can apply realities that are not just present in the sensory world, but infuse and permeate the world of spirit and can make practical use of them. However pious a doctor may be, and however many ideas he may have about some kind of world of spirit, if his medical practice is based on rules founded entirely on our materialistic worldview, and if he tries to cure, therefore, in a way that only acknowledges the body, he is still a materialist, however theoretically spiritual his outlook. What someone says or believes does not count compared to his ability to bring the powers underlying the visible sense world into living movement. It is likewise of little purpose to disseminate an anthroposophical doctrine of fourfold human nature, prattling on about physical body, ether body, astral body, and I, 
even if we can in some way define and describe these things. That too is not the important thing. Instead, we need to understand increasingly the living interplay of these levels of the human being, to understand how physical body, ether body, astral body and capital I are involved in human health and disease and what acts in reciprocal connection with these aspects. For instance, if we never take account of what spiritual science can tell us about the nature of the fourth level of the human being, the I, however much anatomy and physiology we study, we will never gain insight into the nature of blood. It's simply impossible. And for this reason, we will never, in a million years, be able to say anything significant or useful about diseases connected with the blood and its nature. The blood is the expression of our eye nature. There is actually a great deal of truth in the old saying which Goethe includes in his Faust that, quote, blood is a very special fluid, close quote. Modern scientists have no inkling that their research should attend to our physical blood in a quite different way from other aspects of human physical corporeality, which are the expression of something quite different again. Our glands are the expression, the physical counterpart, of the etheric body, and we have to regard what constitutes such a gland, whether liver or pancreas, say, as something quite different from what we find in the blood, as the expression of a much higher level of the human being, the eye. And research methods must take due account of this, showing us how we should approach these things. Now, though I wish to say something that will really only be comprehensible to an advanced student of anthroposophy, but which it is still important to state. To materialistically-minded academics of today, it seems quite evident that if one makes an incision in the body, the blood that flows from this can be studied by all the available means. So they describe it. This is blood, roughly as one would describe any other substance, an acid or such like, according to chemical research methods that govern modern procedures. But in doing so, they overlook something that is in fact not only unknown to materialistic science, but must seem to be idiocy and fantasy, yet is nevertheless true. The blood running in your veins that sustains the living body is not at all what flows out when I make an incision and produce a red drop. The moment blood leaves the body, it undergoes a transformation that renders it quite different. What flows out as congealing blood, however fresh it may be, is not indicative of the whole essence within the living organism. Blood is the expression of the eye a high aspect of the human being. Even in physical terms, blood is something whose totality you simply cannot study physically, because when you see it, it is no longer at all the same as it was when flowing in the body. It cannot be physically observed. For the moment it is brought to view, to be studied by some method like X-ray examination, it is no longer the blood itself at all that is being studied but instead just the external reflection of blood in the physical domain. People will only gradually come to understand these things. 
There have always been researchers who drew on esoteric foundations and such that, and said this, but they have been dismissed as fantasists, philosophers, or such like. In states of human health or disease, everything is really connected with our fourfold human nature, with our full complexity. This is why we can only understand a healthy or sick person by drawing on spiritual scientific insight into the human being. There are quite specific types of debility in the human constitution that can only be understood when we realize they are connected with the nature of the I, and that in a sense, though within certain limits, they are in turn revealed in the blood as expression of the I. Then there are certain types of debility in the human organism that can be attributed to a malfunction of the astral body, thus affecting the astral body's outward expression, the nervous system. But in this second instance, you will have to take note of the subtlety needed to approach such things. When the human astral body bears within it the kind of irregularity that comes to expression in the nervous system as the outward reflection of the astral body, we initially find that the nervous system shows a certain physical, functional incapacity. If the nervous system cannot function properly in a certain direction, this incapacity can result in all sorts of symptoms affecting the stomach, head, and heart. Yet a disorder whose symptoms become apparent in the stomach cannot necessarily be attributed to a certain type of nervous system malfunction and thus to its source in the astral body, it may have an entirely different cause. The types of disease that are connected with the eye itself, and thus with its outward expression, the blood, usually manifest as chronic diseases, but only usually, since in reality things are not so neatly compartmentalized, although sharp demarcations can be drawn when making observations. What can generally first be observed as a particular debility is usually a symptom. Some symptom or other can appear, but there is an underlying debility of the blood, and this has its origin in an irregularity of the aspect of the human being we call the eye-bearer. I could speak to you for hours about types of chronic disease which originate in the blood, in physical terms, and in the eye in spiritual terms. These are primarily genetic diseases in the true sense, passing from one generation to the next. And it is these diseases that can only be understood if we consider human nature from a spiritual point of view. Let's take a patient who has a chronic condition, which basically means that he is never really well. He suffers sometimes from one thing, sometimes from another, from one illness or another. Here we have to take a deeper look at the underlying cause and above all be able to take note of the real fundamental character of the I. What kind of person is this really? If we know something in this field that fully accords with life itself, we can see that quite specific types of chronic disease are connected with a particular underlying purely soul-related character of the I. Certain chronic diseases will never appear 
in someone whose character is informed by gravity and dignity, but they will in a person disposed to whistle and sing. I can only mention these things in passing here as a way marker in these preparatory lectures. But you see, if someone comes along who says, quote, I've had a certain condition for years now, close quote, it is important to be generally clear, first of all, what kind of person this is. We have to know the underlying character and nuance of his eye. Otherwise, we will inevitably get the symptoms wrong unless guided by very lucky chance. The important thing in relation to curing these diseases, which are at the same time genetic or hereditary in the truest sense, is to take account of the person's whole surroundings insofar as they can exert a direct or indirect influence on his eye. Once we have really got to know someone in this way, we may sometimes judge it advisable to send him, if possible, to a particular kind of natural environment during the winter. Or we may recommend that he change his profession if he has a particular kind of job and instead explore a different aspect of life. Here it will chiefly be important to adopt measures that can exert the right influence on the character of the eye. Someone who wishes to cure patients must have broad life experience so that he can enter into another's nature and recommend such things as a change of profession in order to effect a cure. The emphasis must be on what a person's nature requires. In this domain, in particular, any chance of a cure may perhaps fail sometimes because such measures cannot be carried out. But in many cases, such measures can be adopted once we know what they are. A great deal can be achieved for some people, for instance, if they live in a mountainous region rather than at sea level. These are things relating to diseases that outwardly manifest as chronic diseases and are physically connected with the blood and spiritually with the nature of the eye. We now come to diseases which in spiritual terms are primarily rooted in irregularities of the astral body and manifest in certain incapacities of the nervous system in one or another direction. A great many or even most common acute diseases are connected with what we have referred to above. You see, it is misguided to think, as people often do, that a stomach or heart condition or even some clearly perceptible irregularity somewhere can be fully cured by working on these symptoms directly. The major aspect of this symptom may be that the nervous system is incapable of functioning properly here. Thus, a heart disorder may simply be due to an associated malfunction of the nervous system and therefore a failure to support the heart's movements. Here it is quite unnecessary to maltreat the heart, or in another instance the stomach, for basically nothing is directly wrong with them. It is just that the nerves that should be supporting the organ are incapable of functioning properly. If someone has this type of stomach disorder and we administer betaine hydrochloride, this would be the same kind of mistake as imagining that because a train arrives late there is something wrong with the locomotive itself and starting to tinker with it. It will still arrive late because the cause, if one looks, 
turns out to be the train driver getting drunk each time he's meant to drive the engine. The right thing to do, therefore, would be to start with the train driver, who, after all, is the cause of the late arrival of the train. In the same way, in stomach complaints, we may have to address the nerves that look after the stomach instead of starting with the stomach itself. In materialistic medicine, too, you may find some such remarks. But we are not saying that a stomach disorder should always direct you to look first at the nerves taking care of it, for that again will achieve nothing. We will only get somewhere if we know that the nerve is an expression of the astral body and that we can trace things back to the constitution of the astral body and seek the causes of a complaint in its irregularities. Then the question arises as to how we can proceed. In treating disorders of this nature, initially we will need to adopt a dietary cure using the right combination of foods and what the person in question relishes. Thus we focus on his mode of life, not as concerns outward things, but in relation to what he digests and assimilates. And this is something into which no insight can ever be gained through a merely materialistic science. Here we must realize that everything surrounding us in the macrocosm of the wider world is related to our complex internal organism, to the microcosm. Every food we know, therefore, is connected in a quite specific way, to what lies within us. We have spent much time acquainting ourselves with the long progress of human evolution and with discovering how all external nature has been formed by being ejected from the human being. In diverse studies we have repeatedly returned to the time of ancient Saturn, finding that nothing existed there apart from the human being himself, and that, in a sense, the human being human evolution, secreted the other kingdoms of nature, the plant and animal realms, and so forth. In the course of this evolution, the formation of our organs corresponded entirely with what they expelled. As the mineral realm was expelled, quite specific internal organs arose. The heart could not have formed if certain plants, minerals, and mineral capacities had not developed outwardly over the course of time. What developed in the external world has a particular relationship with what formed within us. And now anyone who knows how outer things relate to internal ones can say in each instance how an external substance in the macrocosm can be used to benefit the microcosm. Otherwise we can experience, in a sense, how what we stuff ourselves with really isn't suitable for us. We must therefore seek in spiritual science for the real foundations governing our judgment. When someone falls ill and his diet is then guided by purely empirical laws derived from statistics or chemistry, this will always be a superficial approach. We need a quite different rationale. Here, therefore, we see how spiritual insight has to stream and shine through everything connected with human health and disease. Then there are certain diseases which can assume either more chronic or more acute forms, but which are connected with the human ether body, 
and therefore manifest in human glands. These diseases usually have nothing at all to do with hereditary transmission, but instead are very much connected with a particular nation, race, or people. In relation to diseases rooted in the ether body, therefore, which manifest as glandular diseases, we must always consider whether the patient is, say, Russian, Italian, Norwegian, or French. These diseases are connected with national character and therefore manifest in very different ways. In the medical field, the following major error is made. For instance, throughout Europe a very erroneous view of tabes or locomotor ataxia has become established. Tabes is, uh, readers aside, tabes is spelled T-A-B-E, excuse me, T-A-B-E-S, possibly tabes, tabes, I don't know, tabes, and the readers aside. While it is assessed correctly for the population of Western Europe, this is quite wrong as far as Eastern Europeans are concerned, since it has a different origin there. Today these things vary very greatly. Let me read that again. Today these things vary very greatly. So, now you will understand that this requires fairly careful attention as regards the particular mix of a population. We can only form any kind of judgment here if we learn to make distinctions about inner human nature. Today these diseases are treated in a merely external way, lumped together with the acute diseases, whereas in reality they belong to a quite different domain. We must be aware of one thing especially, that those human organs which are subject to the influence of the ether body and which can become diseased due to irregularities of the ether body have very specific reciprocal relationships. Thus, for instance, there is a very specific relationship between a person's brain and heart. And we can express this in a more pictorial way by saying that this mutual relationship between brain and heart corresponds to the relationship between sun and moon, with the heart corresponding to the sun here and the brain to the moon. And so here we must be clear that if, say, a disease of the heart arises, it will, insofar as it is rooted in the etheric body, inevitably work back upon the brain, just as a solar phenomenon, such as an eclipse, must affect the moon. It really amounts to the same thing, since there is direct connection here. In esoteric medicine, these connections are also indicated by using the heavenly bodies as pictures relating to the constellation of diverse human organs, the heart as sun, brain as moon, spleen as Saturn, liver as Jupiter, gallbladder as Mars, kidneys as Venus, and lungs as Mercury. If you study the mutual relationships of the constellations, you gain a picture of the mutual relationships between human organs insofar as these involve the ether body. It is impossible for the gallbladder to become diseased, a condition which must therefore be traced spiritually to the ether body, without this having concomitant effects on some kind of some kind on the organs named above. If we see the gallbladder in terms of Mars, then it acts in the same way as Mars does within our planetary system. 
In the case of a disease involving the etheric body, we have to know how the organs are interrelated. And yet such diseases are primarily those which we should treat with specific medicines. And this shows us that we should avoid all one-sided views in the esoteric domain. Here we resort to medicines that are found in the external world in plants and minerals. The properties of plants and minerals have great significance for the nature of the etheric body. So if we know that a disease originates in the etheric body and therefore manifests in the glandular system in a certain way, we must find medicines that properly redress or repair the complex of interactions. Specifically, targeted medicines can be used primarily in diseases of this kind, where the prime factor is, of course, their origin in the ether body, followed by their connection with national character and the fact that the organs interact in such conditions. But you may now have gained the idea that if we cannot relocate someone because of his professional ties or for some other reason, then we will be unable to help him. But there is another effective approach which draws on the human psyche. This, in quotes, psychological method is most effective if the disease is to be sought in a person's actual ego or I. If a chronic disease of this kind arises, in some way rooted in the blood, the psychological remedies come into their own. If carried out in the right way, their action upon the eye can fully replace external influences streaming into us. Here you will be able to discern everywhere a subtle, intimate connection. If you observe what the human soul can experience, if, say, a person has had his nose to the grindstone and then briefly enjoys some country air, the feelings of joy that lift the soul are something we can call a psychological method in the broadest sense. But if a physician practices the right methodology, his personal influence can gradually replace this. Psychological methods are most justified in such conditions. We cannot ignore them if only because most illnesses originate in an irregularity of the human eye. We now come to the diseases that arise due to irregularities of the astral body. Here, although we can still use solely psychological methods, they have much less value and will therefore be used less often in treatment. Instead, we use dietetic healing methods. Only in the third type of diseases, as we have called them, is it really justified to support the healing process with external medicines. If we observe the complexity of the human being, Healing, too, must be seen in a holistic and not a one-sided way. The last category of diseases are, in quotes, diseases proper, those that originate in and relate to the physical body. These are the true infectious diseases. This is an important subject, which we will return to in more detail in one of the subsequent lectures, after considering the true origin of the Ten Commandments. As you will see, these things are certainly connected. Today I can only indicate that this fourth type of disease exists and that in discerning its deep foundations we require knowledge 
of the whole of nature, with which the human physical body is connected. The physical is not what underlies this, but really, once more and even more so, the realm of spirit. Even having considered this form of illness, we will not yet have exhausted all major types of disease. We will see that human karma also plays into it as a fifth aspect that we have to include. Gradually, therefore, we will see how the five different forms of human disease reveal something of their nature as disorders originating in the domain of the I, astral body, etheric body, physical body, and what we can regard as karmically determined aspects of disease. The whole modern medical outlook will only lead to something salutary when it is imbued with insight into the higher aspects of human nature. Until then we will not have a school of medicine that can really engage with what is needed. Although these things, like many of our esoteric insights, must be brought into a form appropriate for the modern world, you should remember that they are, in a sense, an ancient form of wisdom. Medicine was originally based on spiritual perception and gradually became ever more materialistic. More than in any other field of knowledge, perhaps, medicine can show us how materialism has taken humanity by storm. In former times, at least, people were aware that knowledge of fourfold human nature was needed to understand the human being. Naturally, materialism had earlier forerunners, so that even four hundred years ago and more, clairvoyant people could see that everyone around them was starting to think in a materialistic way. Paracelsus, for example, who is not understood today, but regarded as a fantasist or dreamer, asserted in no uncertain terms that medical science of his day, as propounded in Salerno, Montpelier, or Paris, and also in areas of Germany, was materialistic, or at least was on the way to becoming so. Because of his world standing, Paracelsus saw the need, as is again necessary today, to draw attention to the nature of a medical outlook founded on the spirit, as opposed to one acquired in a merely materialistic domain. Today it may be even more difficult than Paracelsus found in his day to make any headway with a Paracelsian mode of thinking. At that time, medicine's materialistic outlook was not yet so sharply antagonistic to the thinking of Paracelsus as materialistic science is today to insight of any kind into the fundamentally spiritual nature of the human being. What Paracelsus said in relation to this still holds true today, therefore, but its validity is perceived still less. If you look at the thinking of people today who work at the dissection table or in the laboratory and see how modern research is used to understand health and sickness, it would be very easy to oppose this materialistic outlook in the same way that Paracelsus did. The difference is that unlike Paracelsus, one can have little hope that one might be understood or at least perhaps forgiven by contemporary physicians. Forgiven, since Paracelsus himself stated that he had never rubbed shoulders with the upper classes, that he was not a refined fellow, but came from a rough working background 
and had grown up in a world of cheese, milk, and oat bread, and therefore asked to be pardoned if what he said was not always couched in elegant language. In discussing various dispositions to illness, Paracelsus says of both French, Italian, and also German physicians, quote, For it is a great error and much amiss that so many French and Italian physicians, especially in Montpelier, Salerno, and Paris, who wish to be lauded above all others and who despise everyone else, in fact know nothing themselves and have no skill, but as can be shown their art is nothing but talk and pomp and much prattling. They are not ashamed to use clusters and purges or bleed someone to death if it accords with their notions. They pride themselves on their knowledge and use of anatomy, but have never yet noticed that tartar accumulates in the teeth, not to mention all sorts of other conditions. These eye-doctors can't see what's right in front of their nose. What is all your skill and anatomy? It's as much use as codswallop, and your eyes are too few to see what's staring you in the face. The German cuckoo doctors are no better, thieves and young idiots, who, when they've seen everything, know less than before. So they're drowning in muck and cadavers, and then it's funeral time to pour wash-rags, Folk remedies would serve them much better. Close quote. The end of lecture eight.